Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is the 29th of October, 2020. This is episode 311 of Bitcoin and after 310 episodes, got my first interview. So that's what's going to happen today. There's not going to be any news today. I don't want to rehash 750 points up and 750 points down inside of a 36-hour period because, you know, well, (laughs) that's just not something that I want to talk about. And some of the other brutal bullshit that's going on. We can leave it all behind and we can talk about video games. Specifically, we can talk about Infinite Fleet. So who am I interviewing today? It's going to be Samson Mo and a guy named Wayne Wan Chong. He's the art director over at Pixelmatic. Pixelmatic is uh, Samson's uh, game company that's been around for actually a lot longer than you might think. It's been around for almost, I think it's coming up on 10 years Um, And they are the producers of a game called Infinite Fleet, which will be a uh, real-time simulation in three dimensions. It's going to be, I've seen the artwork. Um, If you have it, it's available. You can just go to to like, you know, Google Infinite Fleet or Pixelmatic and you'll, you'll be able to find it. But it honestly looks pretty good so far. So I sat down with both of those gentlemen last night and recorded this almost like it's about an hour and 20 minute long interview. So buckle up for the very first interview in what I hope is a lot more interviews here at Bitcoin and. Welcome to Bitcoin and Samson Mao. And Wayne Wong Chong, both of you guys are from Pixelmatic, and I wanted to talk to both of you about your upcoming title and the title that you're working on, Infinite Fleet and Other Matters. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Nice to meet you. Yeah, it's nice to talk to both of y'all. Just so the audience knows, this is actually going to be the very first time that I've ever done an interview, so when I screw all of this up, please be easy on me, although... We're talking to, you know, we're talking to Bitcoiners, so they're probably not going to be easy on me. So, um, <laughs> Samson, Samson, Samson Mo and Wayne Wong Chong, we're going to be talking about Infinite Fleet uh, and, and like I said, other things. So, um, almost, you know, a lot of people know you, Samson. So, I actually kind of want to start with Wayne. Wait, let, let's actually kind of go back into history Wayne, what can you nutshell your history of, of video games? Not not only where you've worked, but sort of uh, what your bent is on on video games. Like, d- did you pick them up as a kid? That kind of thing. So, 
Can you kind of take us through that a little bit? Sure, I can blast through that. You guys can get a brief history. Um, so uh, I, I got into the industry, obviously, because I, I love games and I wanted to work in games and create games. I started in uh, actually, oddly enough, architecture, because that's where my art skills kind of fell in a traditional sense. Uh, but I really got hooked on programming when I started learning CAD. And from there, I went into digital arts for 3D. I went to Vancouver Film School, graduated from there and went straight into television production. I've been into in the uh, 3D industry for about 20 years now and uh, 15 going on 16 years of it in games. Uh, and uh, I was at Relic for 12 years. Uh, when I joined Relic, uh, Jason was there and uh, I never really crossed paths with Samson or Jason. So I'm, I'm kind of the third wheel uh, at Pixelmatic. But um, I started on a game called Space Brain, which was uh, Relic's second attempt at third-person action. Uh, and then from there, I moved on to Company of Heroes 2, Dawn of War 3, uh, and then Age, Age uh, of Empires 4. So um, that's kind of like the really, really brief history about uh, where I've been and how I've kind of landed at Pixelmatic. Uh, but I've generally been uh, a, a strategy gamer, anything that has high APM. Uh, and I and when I'm tired of that or it's boring for me, I go into FPS quite a bit. But my Twitch skills are really bad now. <laughs> That's what Same. happens when you get old. Hey, 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 stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the oldest person in Pixelmatic, by the way. They rag on oh. me all the time. <laughs> Hey, you know, somebody, somebody's got to be the oldest. I mean, when I went to Bitblock Boom, I was like, man, dude, half these cats are, are less than half my age. Thank God for Gary Leland. <laughs> <laughs> Samson, so, so same, same question, man. Um, you know, like we're, um, you know, notwithstanding some of the names that, that, uh, Wayne dropped on, on the games that, that he worked on, we're, we're going to get in, we're going to get into, um, some of these, some of these titles a little bit, but, uh, Samson, like, so what, you know, as a kid, were you a gamer? And then how is it that you ended up in, into getting into video games and working as extensively as you have like Wayne in, in the video game industry? Yeah. So I would say I was a pretty hardcore gamer as a kid. Um, my first console was the Nintendo, the super Nintendo, and you know, I started playing Mario, uh, <laughs> all the all those old games. I got a Sega Genesis, and I liked Sonic the Hedgehog, um, Double Dragon. You know, all those kind of old school titles. And yeah, I mean, from there it just evolved. And you know, when when we got the internet, I started playing online games, uh, doing the old dial-up, uh, <laughs> the dial-up scenario where you you call up to the BBS, and I played this mud called. Uh, mutants and you know i had a lot of fun and um that that's kind of like the the first opening of my eyes as a kid to what games would evolve into that there is a social component to it um there is a, a very much an online component that makes the games much more rich than playing single player by yourself yeah um i that's an interesting that you mentioned muds uh for those of you guys that don't know what the hell a mud is it's a I always referred to it as a multi-user dimension. Uh, the one that I played was Ancient Anguish and Samson. It sounds it sounds a lot like me and you track. We we may be we may be the same age because you know <laughs> Super Nintendo. Maybe. 
Yeah, Super Nintendo, you know, Sega, um, you know, the one that we got got all into was Double Dragon, you know, and Double, yeah. Double Dragon and Contra. Contra was one of my all-time favorites. Oh, yeah. Uh, now people are doing the math. They're definitely yeah, doing people, the math right now. Uh, we, so, we so doxed ourselves, although, like, dude, good, good luck doing anything with that, pal. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, we, we, we have to have some kind of identity. It's not like we're always, you know not everybody is always going to be hacked because they know your first name and they know slightly what games you played as a child. I, I, I just, you know, yeah. I could be fooling myself on that, but still. Um, okay. So, so Samson, so what's you started Pixelmatic? It's not new. This thing's like 11 years old. So what, you know, what, when did you decide or what, what was the impetus of saying, you know what? I want, I want to continue working in video games so much because you were at, not only you were at Relic, but you were at Ubisoft, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... so actually, I forgot to talk about Ubisoft, so, or Relic. So I joined Relic in um, 2005, and I was part of the balance team. So we were working on Dawn of War at the time, and we didn't have time to run an extensive beta like for Blizzard games. So what what the company decided to do was basically bring that in-house and you know tune and balance the game all internally before it goes out like blizzard has the the luxury of doing long long betas right they can ship the game when whenever it's ready and and that's great for the game but I, not everyone can do that so that was a strategy that they did and i was one of the uh, top starcraft players in vancouver at the time so like wayne I like high APM. I, I can't do high APM anymore. <laughs> it's just not not in in me anymore. But uh, you know, I, I used to be pretty good at StarCraft. I played FPS as, as well. I was one of the top uh, Unreal Tournament players. Uh, I'm mainly focused on uh, Capture the Flag. But I don't know if you remember, but there is a pro gamer, Dennis uh, Fong. He went by Thresh. But I would smurf as Thresh in Unreal, and he would be <laughs> playing. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, not not doom i forgot quake. the name of the other yeah 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 quake so he was quake and then i would play unreal and then people would think that i'm actually him playing unreal because <laughs> i was pretty decent oh but yeah so that's like my history and how i got into it so i started running this uh, team at relic and i hired a lot of people uh into this balance team i was really just looking for pro gamers effectively like the the whole gaming scene was not as mature it, it, as it is today. So I think if I was you know born ten years later, I would have been like a streamer or something. But back then, it's like very local, local land tournaments and stuff, and we competed in all of those. And like some people from my guild uh, actually competed in World Cyber Games, which was like a, <laughs> the first incarnation of esports, right? So right. I would actively recruit players from that area into Relic to you know, help make the games fun and competitive. And some of my recruits included Jason Lee. He is also one of my guildmates. Uh, our guild was called Rice, and you know, we used to play pretty hardcore. So back before there's things like um, Event or uh, Discord or whatever, we actually bought headsets. <laughs> we phoned each other and wore uh, these headsets where you didn't have to like hold the phone in your hand and we would play that way. So, yeah, I also recruited David Kim and he went on to work on Blizzard, work on StarCraft 2 at Blizzard and a number of other guys that 
are, are pretty talented. Yeah. So that, that's sort of like what I kind of wanted to end this, you know, I was going to do this in about like, you know, four different sections and I want to kind of end in this, you know, particular section on, on y'all's history with the, you know, trying to impart to the listeners here, the understanding that we're, we're not talking about bat, you know, Bob's backyard, uh, gaming studios. We're talking about top five, I'll be conservative, top 10 gaming studios, literally of all time. Age of Empires is a franchise that has been around for God decades. We got company. This is just out of relic company heroes. You got the Warhammer series. We're talking about like, what else is Homeworld? Yeah. Yeah, Homeworld Homeworld is there. And then we, if we move over to um, like you had a stint over at Ubisoft, right? Samson. Yeah. I worked on some might magic uh, franchises. So they were adapting it for a online web game. So I I helped to adapt that for the Asian market. Um, I also worked a bit on Scott Pilgrim. Uh, I forgot the name of the game, but that was like the, the game that uh, accompanied the movie. And Uh I also did the Smurf social game, which was a top 10 social game in the, in his day with about 10 million players. Right. And, you know, and just, just for, again, for the listeners that may not know, we're talking about franchises such as, well, I don't know, all of Tom Clancy's games, Ghost Recon, The Division, you've got the Assassin's Creed stuff going on, not, and it's not, this isn't stuff that you worked on, but these are the game studios that you guys are, you know, had, you know, years in. So again, and, and Far Cry, I remember I remember when the cry engine first came out and the, the way that they marketed the cry engine was that they put out the game far cry. And the marketing point was you do not own a rig badass enough to play this game. I remember, <laughs> I remember that distinctly and I'm like going, Oh, you know, watch me. And I built a, you know, I had to actually build a rig up that had a video game and enough memory on it that was actually going to be able to run, uh, run far cry. And then I started playing crisis and I'm like going, you know, I mean, I, I started playing like sort of like, you know, y'all were talking about, um, you know, online gaming and there's some aspects about online gaming that we'll get into a little bit later, but mm-hmm. I got to the point when, you know, when I was playing games that I just really lost all taste for any kind of single player game because there was so much more about the social aspect of these things. So I was playing like lot. I played a lot of Call of Duty, you know, yeah. it, it was like that was when the servers first started getting cranked up and, and you know, connections were decent enough that, you know, or internet connections were decent enough that you could actually be able to do that sort of thing. And that, and then everything just got, you know, got much, much better, but I just wanted to, you know, make sure that, that we understood like the listeners understood that we're talking about, like you guys have been in the, basically in the shit in the top 10 video game companies in the world that have been around for decades. So I kind of wanted to make sure that, Cause you know, and the thing about it is, you know, Samson and, and Wayne, I didn't know this. I, I, I mean, I've known like, you know, Wayne, I just first met you tonight. I, you know, or actually I, I first heard about you a couple of days ago when I, you know, connected with Samson on some of this stuff. And he's like, I, I want to get Wayne in on this discussion, but Samson, I've, I haven't known Samson. It's not like we go out and get beer. We, you know, I've never met in, in person, but we've had, you know, a couple of years worth of interactions and he was one of the first people that 
I started following in the in the Bitcoin space. I never knew until I started doing research for this show just how deep you were in. And I find it not an it's not unusual. I actually think it makes a good fit that you're now, you know, also over the chief science officer over at Blockstream, correct? Chief strategy. <laughs> strategy. Sorry, chief strategy. And for a lot of, you know, I was like going, well, you know, I could see how people would go, you know, that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, yeah, I take it like two seconds from it and go, yeah, it actually does make sense. The the one thing that you would like to have in, you know, economics is somebody who balances games. Because that's like, you know, that makes a, that makes a whole shit ton of sense, which is one of the reasons why. I I was always surprised that I wasn't hearing more about, you know, like Infinite Fleet as a game coming out that had the stuff coming, the stuff that was under the hood, uh, which will which we should probably get into here in a second. But mm-hmm. let, I wanted to switch over to Infinite Fleet as the game. And, you know, Wayne, can you can you tell me about the scope of the game insofar as, you know, first of all, what is it? But how big is it? So I think you talked about it a little bit there, David, that we come from a pedigree of large, large franchises, and they don't just drop uh, in the pond once and then they kind of uh, close the doors and they go on to another IP. The IPs that Samson and I have worked on are longstanding IPs that have multiple DLCs that are worth uh, millions of dollars as franchises, right? And with that price tag and that responsibility, there is a huge amount of risk and scope. And that's where our expertise lies, right? So um, Infinite Fleet is is no different in terms of the kind of quality bar that we want to hit, the kind of uh, social game that is also like deep in terms of lore and in terms of gameplay. Uh, and it certainly has like the high quality bar that we uh, we looked to in the early days from Company of Heroes and some of the other franchises at Relic, right? And to a, to a larger degree, like uh, Ubi as well, like it, it might be a different genre, but that same level of quality for AAA is, is, is across the board what we strive for, right? So Infinite Fleet is... is um, like a large MMO strategy game where we are really feeding the fantasy of sci-fi retro action uh, where the player can engage with their friends in uh, a lot of uh, missions and uh, really build on like their base and their economy and interact with the world and engage in the the sci-fi universe that we're creating. Samson, same question. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think I forgot to touch on one point. So you said Pixelmatic has been around for a while. Um, I founded it in 2011. So, you know, it's getting close to the the 10 year mark. Uh, But the reason why I decided to start it was because I thought that we can do a lot of things better. And we originally started out doing mobile games because it was the hot thing at the time. And then we shifted over to operating other games for other people in Asia, just because my team is you know, largely in based in Asia, and we're familiar with building our infrastructure there. So we operated uh, Vainglory when it was at its peak. I think we spun up the first servers for them in China, and we worked with their publishing partners in China too. Like basically, we handled all the tech ops, and you know that's supporting uh, multi-million MAUs or you know hundreds of thousands of CCUs too. And it's like a MOBA game like League of Legends. 
And mm-hmm. somewhere around 2016, I decided like I wanted to build this really ambitious game, which was Infinite Fleet. And that was about the time I was at, um, I, I started at BTCC. I joined them in 2015 officially. So I was pretty you know, deep into the Bitcoin rabbit hole at that time. And I thought, you know, there's a way here that we can kind of bring the two worlds together. So like one reason I think that we're all here is that we want to work on something that is ambitious and it has a wide ranging implication in the gaming space and possibly more. And this kind of a risk is not something that a traditional studio would take. So you, you won't see you know Blizzard rolling out an MMO game with a, a crypto asset component to it. Uh, you know, uh, Call of Duty is probably not going to do the same either, right? They're very comfortable in their franchises and with their audiences and with their current models for game economics. They're not going to take any risks at all. And I think it has to be from a studio that is, you know, founded by uh, people that are willing to take that chance and willing to take a risk and willing to, you know, put that effort in to build something that's radically new. I don't know about you, Wayne, but that's <laughs> that's the reason why I'm here. What about you? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I think that uh, you see it every day with all of the large franchises just jumping on, whether it's MOBA, whether it's uh, Battle Royales, like that's that's playing it safe, right? And that's really not chasing a dream in terms of a franchise. It's just chasing the money. And we kind of know in this day and age that we're fighting for players' time uh, it's 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 really important in today's day and age with everybody uh, too busy and occupied with just life that when they get that precious time to enjoy something, that's that's what we're really going for. And we don't want to do it in a way that is safe, that is just following the pack. We want to stand out. And I think mm-hmm. that's what makes this game special. Yeah, like the, the big game studios, it's going to be just the same thing repackaged. Um, and, and typically they'll copy something that's already done. So... You know, if MOBAs are hot, then you'll see more MOBAs come out. And they're really undifferentiated from one another. Like, I bet you five years from now, we'll be seeing the same kind of Assassin's Creed, different different artwork, different story, but same mechanics. But what we want to do with Infinite Fleet is do something radically different, right? We want to kind of bring the RTS genre into the mainstream. And one way to do that is simplifying that control schema. So it's not about APM. Um, Jason Lee, our chief creative officer, was talking about this before. It's about uh, DPM, decisions per minute, or DPS, decisions per second, um, whichever one you're going for. But the idea is that we want to make uh, you know, a strategy game for the mass market, and kind of bringing EVE Online uh, to like a market the size of World of Warcraft, where you can have tens of millions of players playing this thing, and it's not daunting to get into uh and it's not uh, high, there's not a high barrier to entry for the average guy. Yeah, right, we're, we're right. touching on we're touching on other franchises already, right? We're 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 touching on Eve now. There's a lot of compet- competitors out there, and again, we're wading into a space that uh, we're gonna really hit hard and try to stand out because we think we have something special, right? Uh, like Eve definitely has their type of gamers where it takes a long time to invest in things and subterfuge and economy, and it's a long buildup. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, which is like Everspace, which which is like you know um, similar to uh, like just jumping in there, having fun, and like just uh, shooting up some stuff and and enjoying the that 
experience, but we want to do something radically different. And that's, and that's why like we're, we're all risk takers, right? We're finding what is unique and new, and then we're going for it. So this is, it seems to me that infinite fleet is a real time simulation game. That's in 3d and we've, we've seen these before, but not really in 3d we've seen them in clearly we've seen them in 2d. There is, I could rattle off any number of games that have been out over the last 15 years that are RTS on the ground, Starcraft being probably one of the most well-known, but this Mm -hmm. one is in 3D. So all of a sudden now I've got X, Y, and Z axis and I'm having to watch all this stuff. How do you guys even approach that? Because we're talking space battles and I'm in control of the fleet and apparently I've delegated and made certain ships in my fleet capable of doing certain tasks or or they're equipped to perform certain functions how on earth would i be able as a commander to control all that i without just you know having neurons decide to just say you know what i i give up i i, I can't do it how, do, how does that work because we're talking about a space game that from what i can tell is procedural and that procedurality means we're talking about a lot of space. I mean, not just, it's not like in a, it's not a container. This thing seems to be very expansive. And then if you're, if I'm in a, if I'm in a battle that I've warped to and I've got 15 ships under my command, how does that work? I mean, and you don't have to get to the specifics as much as what's your philosophy and Wayne, can you, I mean, you're the art director um, it, it may not be good, the, the best thing to start off with you, but I want to hear your, what, what's your view on this? Well, um, the one thing for the feel of the game that we're really trying to, um, uh, express to people is that this is not a traditional RTS game where you're going to play a lot from a zoomed out camera and you're going to just watch the space opera happen. We actually have um, a, a camera that is very dynamic that creates a very cinematic feel. And we have the option of using both cameras during gameplay real time, right? Um, so, so you do have a, a tactical perspective. And again, this is, a, this is a DPM game or a DPS game. So um, we kind of equated it in the early days to, to Madden, right? It's like we want the, the ship that you are flying as a commander to be the quarterback and whether you warp into an area or whether you're just cruising through space, there's always this understanding of like, be prepared as well as like uh, be able to have time to make smart decisions. Right. So um, with that as kind of a foundation and we, we knowing that we're not just going to warp in somewhere and we're going to have the player just get shot down instantly with like high, high damage weapons from some AI we, we start to craft like the experience that way from the art perspective, right? Um, and so like that, that's really how we're, it's our, our building block for starting off to create how these, these battles are gonna happen is make sure that we don't uh, like trounce the players right away and give them enough time to uh, evaluate the situation, create enough space and environments that they can position and move and then after that, start to layer on all the different types of uh, weapons and tactical behavior. Samson, can you expand upon that? Yeah, so I guess it's um, it's kind of like we want to emulate what it would be to command a fleet, right? Uh, if you're really a fleet commander, then you have you know your sub commanders or your captains of other ships that you would delegate out to. 
And this is something that our CTO Sunny is working on, which is uh, effectively AIs, little mini AIs that help uh, manage the other ships under your command. So you should be able to give like broad directives, like flank and flank and attack, or uh, let's do a pincer formation and close in. Uh, but you should be able to task high level the different ships in your fleet, and they should execute on those. And you can kind of keep on course correcting them as you need and give them different commands to adjust or uh, focus them on different targets. But a lot of that um, that minutia and micro is going to be offloaded into these AI agents that will effectively execute your orders. Okay, that that actually makes a lot of sense. And it really, bring, it really brings to mind, you know, I was like, you know, I, I grew up with, you know, Star Trek, uh, the original series reruns. <laughs> And, uh, you know, getting all the way into, you know, Star Trek, the next generation, there was a couple of scenes where they'd say something like, you know, execute defensive mover Picard number 619. Is that sort of something that like, you know, like that could be like, you know, uh, part of what, what it is, like a way to think about what you're talking about, being able to just say, here's a, you know, here's formation a please execute. And then all that is offloaded to, to the AIs and then you play your part and the other ships kind of like do their thing. Yeah, I think that's, it's fair to say that would be the ultimate goal, but I don't know if we're going to be at that level right off the bat. Um, it's something that we'll need to refine over time. And we have some machine learning models that we're, we're experimenting with, but uh-huh. you know, the, the idea is that they should be, semi-autonomous like at the start when we are when we're able to launch into beta uh, uh-huh. that they're not just going to be dumb like if you send a starcraft unit and say fight it's just going to walk over there and shoot right mm-hmm. or if you just uh, attack move then they're just going to move and 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 die right but right. even if you just give them some directional commands they should handle some of the targeting and some of the micro on their own Okay. Okay. Now, is there any possibility that like one ship in my fleet could be like hot handled by another actual human player? Uh, I think that's out of scope. The idea is that we want you to play with other players. So they would actually have their own fleets. And um, our goal is that we would be able to do uh, synchronous combat of like three people playing together. So a lot of the combat will be somewhat instanced in into little uh isolated cubes so that you're not interfering and like space itself naturally acts as a barrier for that right you're not going to all congregate into one small zone you're going to be naturally distributed and that should help keep things kind of uh functional and spaced out okay if if we keep coming back to the basics of what the title is right it's it's fleet and so like many rts games that have struggled in the past where with just putting large numbers to create a really like galactic experience of, of a huge battle on screen. Uh, that's what we're going for. We're going for fleet level visuals, not individual uh, little experiences. So we're, we're really trying to create that fantasy of a, a massive battle going on that you're a part of with your friends. They're bringing their entourage and you're bringing your firepower and you're interacting together and you're having fun and, and just like, really just uh, creating like tons of battle explosions everywhere. Okay. Now there's, uh, I ran across this on, on more than several occasions doing the, the background on this uh, directed, directed narrative. Now I'm assuming that this is a persistent universe. It doesn't make sense to, 
not do that unless I am just clearly wrong. No, you're right. It's persistent. Okay. okay. So what what's directed narrative? Can you kind of go through that, Samson? Yeah. So the idea is um, we are effectively like the dungeon master. We're actively going to be watching what players, what alliances are doing and react accordingly. Uh, we're not mapping out the whole story from day one and, and you know, building all those quests that like go and kill 10 of those and get you know, five of those items and come back, right? The idea is like we want to write the story together with the players. So we're going to set objectives. If you think of the whole game universe as a, a board, there are different objectives there and people can choose which objectives they tackle and they need to work together. Some of them will be massive objectives like, you know, siege this planet and you'll need hundreds of players to cooperate to win that battle. But if that battle is won, then something else will happen accordingly. It's not all preordained. So if you played Mass Effect, it's kind of like very uh, pointless. You know, they say there's three paths <laughs> to the yeah. story, but there's only one ending. So it doesn't really matter what you do, right? But with Infinite Fleet, you know, there is an open end to it. We're going to be writing the story and it's going to be dynamic based on what actually happens. And the, the world is like, uh, it's persistent. So if you, let's say, for example, if uh, we, we, we say that Aatrox are coming to attack Sol system and Earth and, you know, the players fail to mount a defense. Well, Earth could be destroyed and blown up into <laughs> little asteroids, right? So right. that will be the world that people experience down the road. There should be real implications based on the player actions. And another aspect of the directed narrative is we want to weave the players into the story. So this is a deficiency in almost every online game. So every online game has a lifetime. You know, it, it'll shut down after 10, 20 years. It's just right. how it works, right? But th those years that you spent playing, yes, you had fun. You had great social experiences with your friends. And, you know, you might have made some video recordings of it. But what happens when the game is gone? It's, that's all really gone. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that we want to write that lore. So if you go to infinitefleet.com and you're looking at our website, you can see the chronicles. That's basically the backstory of how we're arriving at present day when the game starts. But once the game has started, if you, David, you have an mm -hmm. alliance and you do some amazing things, well, that week we're going to write you know, what happened. It's almost like a summary. And the, okay. the goal is that we'll be able to take this and condense them into volumes and you know publish books eventually where you can take that book and put it on your shelves and you know 50 years later you can toss it to your kids and say hey this is what i did and there's actually something there that i i really enjoy that i really enjoy that idea you know i spent a few years in the ultima online universe are you familiar with that particular franchise yeah. Yeah, we actually hired one of the engineers that worked on ultima we haven't announced it yet but he just oh, joined okay. our team <laughs> then we then, then we won't we won't we won't say the name, but that's Richard Garriott's old you know old yeah. outfit out of origin. Lord British, yeah, Lord British. That guy is you know he's he's a he's an interesting cat. I I will give him that. But you know <laughs> he you know so Electronic Arts buys this thing from him, and he you know a couple of years out not a couple of years it was more than like, probably a fistful of years like five maybe six him and his team actually tried to buy it back and EA wouldn't give it to him from what I understand. I don't know if that's, you know, entirely correct, but um, because EA is basically just at this point, they're just squatting, you know, the squatting on it. And 
almost everything that I remember from the game and all the people that I had interactions with, it's just like it was, it's just gone. It's just Mm -hmm. gone. And that happens with, you know, like you said, you know, with, with all these, you know, not all, but with a lot of franchises, it just, it runs its course and then it goes out. And this kind of actually in it, like in another way of putting it, uh, or another way of, of thinking about it, you had said something that really resonated with me about how all the, you know, FPS or first person shooters or, you know, any of like 3d, you know, 3d, uh, generate 3d games or whatever. Like, you know, I remember, you know, I was really excited about call of duty. I really was. And I, I got mm-hmm. so good at it. I got accused of using an aim bot by people online. And I'm like, dude, I made it. <laughs> you get accused of you, you kill enough people. It's so fast that you get accused of using an aim bot and you know, you're not dude. Yeah. You, you made it. And, but, um, after a while, it just got to the point where it's like, this is all the same thing. And mm-hmm. that's the other side of having, you know, a franchise just go away and the time that you spent there kind of being worth nothing. And there's nothing, there's nothing at all heartwarming about realizing that you had a lot of fun. Yeah, that's, and that's great, but there's nothing to show for it. So I'm really interested in, the situation of, of you guys actually, you know, having some kind of chronicle about this. And I wanted to ask y'all both, are you aware of a game called Dwarf Fortress? Can't say I am. No, Wait. no, neither. Okay. This one is, uh, is really interesting insofar that the, uh, user experience is kind of crap. It doesn't look good because it's like the guy that's building it or the, the people that are, it's like two people that are building it. It's like two brothers and one other guy. They've been building it for a decade and it's got some of the most awesome mechanics inside, but you'll never know that because they don't really care about the user experience. But one of the things that they have is a procedural history generator. And it mm. will literally mm. generate natural language. Like you create a world at the very first and, and say, well, how old do you want this world? And you say like 10,000 years and it generates 10,000 years worth of text. And <laughs> it's read, it's not only readable, but that history comes back in the game as you mm-hmm. play. And it, as you play, it adds to the history. And I was wondering if, the directed narrative had something to do with procedurality and natural language. It sounds like it doesn't insofar as it's not AI, but it it does sound like it does because there are actual humans behind the scenes that care what happens. And for me, that's actually a little bit better, but still it was just, it was, I wanted to find out if you had heard about this thing. Cause this thing is like, this is like a gamer's geek game. If, if you ever get a chance to hang out with Dwarf Fortress, uh, you might you might just give it a scan. Just the Wikipedia entry alone would probably be enough. <laughs> yeah, I'll check it out. Sounds yeah, it, it, it's a really interesting thing. So uh, I wanted to move just a little bit or to end this section off with uh, the technicals. What's the game engine, Wayne? Oh, we're using Unity. All right. So Samson, why, why Unity? Why not? Uh, why not the CryEngine? 
why not unreal god forbid unreal 4 <laughs> well i think it's a it's a pretty boring answer we've just always used unity so it's like a no-brainer that okay. uh, our engineering so, team is familiar with it and you know it, it's so, a good engine so you've always always used unity uh what what drew you to that particular platform I don't know. I think it was actually a choice from uh, Sunny, our CTO, probably <laughs> years and years ago. But uh, I, I think Unity was the first really affordable engine. So Unreal has made some changes, and it's much more accessible now. But back in the day, like it was out of reach for most people. And you know, we grew up using Unity, and we we're 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 tooled with Unity. We're we're good, so we're not yeah. going to change it. Un- Unity started down the app path and small games, indie games, and over time, it it grew larger and larger to do AAA games. Whereas Unreal started the opposite direction, right? They they yeah. started mm-hmm. with FPS technology. They started with potentially third person, high detail, and then worked backwards to do app app support as well. So they're they're two different paradigms. And uh, like in the early days. Uh, like Pixelmatic has a, a lot of other uh, apps out there, right? So like it, that's where that kind of comes from is like building upon uh, that infrastructure from a technical point of view. But um, Unity is, is right up there with Unreal now. They're, they're not to be scoffed at, right? Like there's some beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful stuff, whether it's uh, cinematics or whether it's games coming out with Unity. Definitely. Yeah, uh, when I was, I was the... Uh senior administrator at the Texas Tech University Library. We had built a 3D animation laboratory for students, faculty, and staff. And we we loaded Unity instead of any of the other game engines um, because of its affordability. Actually, it was, well, when we started loading it on our uh, machine's images, uh, it was free. You know, and it still is free. You, I mean, we, I was able to hork like all manner of educational licenses when they went from the completely free and they went, I think they went from completely free to, uh, sort of like a subscription model and a couple of different seat, uh, license seat models after the, uh, electronic arts guy took over the CEO position a few years back. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I watched, I watched that engine, you know, grow from, um, you know, from God bare bones to absolutely stunning, stunning things to the point that I never asked myself if I was shortchanging our patrons at the library by not putting on any other game engine, because honestly, that thing is one of the nicest, slickest and most utilizable game engines I've ever seen. And if you know how to, if you really know how to program, then it's, then the sky's the limit, just like with, you know, just like with Unreal. And I remember Unreal when Unreal 3 engine was released a long time ago. I remember seeing seat licenses going for $400,000. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it was not, you know, and and I I remember it's like, um, Wayne, was it you that was saying that you had a background in architecture? Yeah, I started in architecture. Yeah, that's when I first got into 3D. Um, I was getting, I was taking architecture classes um, at my college um, because of the because of their 3D program, and we were, you know, we were building, you know, buildings that you could walk in, walk through. There was, you know, scant game logic, but we were actually using Unreal Two 
at the time to do it. And, you know, it was, it was, it was fun doing that, being able to build something in 3d and then be able to address it as, as a human and say, this is what it looks like from this angle. It's like, because you're walking, essentially walking around with a camera and it was, it was always, it was always great fun. But when we started finding out that if you wanted to do that, at a professional level, you were going to pay out the ass for the license for the Unreal Engine. And then when we, you know, when I started working for the library and we started putting together the laboratory, I was like going, we are not spending that kind of cash, bro. (laughs) No, that's like, no, we're going to find something else. And we found Unity and I absolutely fell in love with that engine. So that brings me to the use of Blender, the 3D animation and modeling and texturing package that I assume your entire crew is using to make uh, to build the digital assets. Yeah, our our uh, modeling crew is using Blender. Um, we we actually do some animation and stuff in Maya, but all of our ships are created in Blender and they are textured in Substance Painter. Uh, Blender is the future. There's no doubt about it. There's a there's Ubisoft is is one of the companies that's backing Blender, right? Like. There, uh-huh. there's, there was no precedence for Blender to really wade into the market and try to go up against Autodesk. But over time, they've just really been patient and listened to what people need. And uh-huh. the following has gotten larger and larger and larger. And now it's free and it's, it's one of the packages of choice. Um, like it's, I really think that in the next few years, we're going to start to see a phasing out of core Autodesk products. And it's going to be a Blender and ZBrush and uh, alg- algorithmic products just taking over some of the market because you you don't need all the overhead and the high prices that some of the other packages are, um, come with. Yeah, did you, uh, Wayne, did you say that Ubisoft is backing Blender? There's a lot of companies that are backing Blender right now. I had, uh, I had no idea. I've, I've kind of been out of the loop on on some of this uh, for, for a little while, but that is, that's, tremendous news for me because I, I mean, it's like, I, I'm not generally a blender user as uh, I fell into really falling in love with the Houdini package out of side effects. And because of my position at Texas tech, I was able to work with their CTO at the time and get a, you know, a 50 seat license for uh, as a donation for six years. So I got so used to using Houdini and I felt so much in love with it that I never, you know, was, I, I never really used Blender, but I always kept track on it and, uh, or kept track of it. And I, that is, again, that's tremendous that, that, that they are actually getting support from the gaming industry, uh, seemingly not from one, but at least a few studios. That's, that's really good news. Now, the other thing for all the 3D geeks, uh, you mentioned that you're using substance as yes. uh, materials. Uh, Designer what, and painter. What's that workflow like for you? And and I'm going to ask that question uh, and let, let, I guess we should probably keep it, you know, keep it brief. But for the guys out there that are listening that don't know uh, what substance is, how, let's just say, how different is using substance from what has been traditionally used before the guys over in France at Algorithmic um, created substance? Well, the main difference is is that um, instead of just every single asset being in Photoshop painted, 
uh, on on a, a UV unwrapped mesh. Uh, what Substance Painter and Designer give you the option of is really having consistency in the visuals. So you have what we call a, a library, which has all the materials that you've created that they could be our space metals or they could be uh, organic, organic surfaces. But those all come from essentially one repository of paints, right? And then you use those and then you paint them across all your models and you're able to tune them in one location and then everything looks consistent from an art perspective. That's one of the main advantages of using designer and painter. Whereas in the olden days, like if you were an art director, you'd have to be setting a high standard for the colors and the values that are used by every single artist. And everything would need to kind of go in, go in at the same time. And you'd have to look at them individually. Like, ah, that red's kind of off. Why is that red off? Oh, it's because that artist used this color slightly different and their workflow slightly different. Whereas painter and designer, it kind of unifies all that. So it, it makes the art more cohesive and it gives you a lot more control. Uh, on Just to round out that blender section is that it's going to be really interesting because obviously... A lot of artists around the world have used Blender for some time because of the price point. Now what you're going to see is all of the 3D industry that has not been using Blender for many years and just starting to use Blender um, is going to start to see a little bit of competition between the people that have been using it for decades and keeping up with it as they're able to get jobs now in the 3D industry because Blender is more mainstream. This is going to become high demand uh high demand in terms of a package because uh, of their, their node-based system, because of all the skills that you could use uh, transferred now from Blender into 3D game production at all the big studios. Okay. Well, the, the, the last part that I wanted to get from this section was uh, the game market. Apparently you guys are going to have items, you know, clearly there's going to be some kind of market items of, you know, either player built or game generated uh, out of spawn points. I, I, you know, however that is going to work there, apparently there's, there's going to be some kind of trade. Samson, can you kind of, can you kind of nutshell the economy of infinite fleet yeah so we, we are going to be selling ship skins basically these are like base level ships that you need to level up over time uh but the idea is that we don't want you to be able to just like buy something that's massively powerful like somebody has to invest their their time and energy into building it up so what we sell is just like you know the entry level thing. And we'll have free ships as well, as well as these uh, higher level ships that are have more bells and whistles or look cooler. And we'll also have sets of ships too. So you might want to complete a set of uh, ships that are all of the same generation, same kind of style, and you know, they might have some unique attribute across them, like uh, they have uh, improved shielding against solar radiation or something like that. But the idea about the game is that we want this peer-to-peer -peer economy. And unlike a lot of MMOs, we're embracing that there will be a secondary market. And this ties into another thing that I think you wanted to talk about, which is the, the crypto part. But um, you, know, you come into the game and you play, you level up your ship, and you can sell these to other people. So you're just there's an arbitrage between time and <laughs> time and money. So if you have money and not time, you can buy something from another player that they've invested in and built up. And that player can earn, you know, INF, which is the utility token in the game, which is also a crypto asset. 
Right. And that's, that's actually what we're going to uh, talk about next. We're going to uh, use that to roll into the next section is the, the use of uh, cryptocurrency in, in the game infinite fleet. And, but I, I do want to start with the externals on that. Y'all had uh, an initial raise that from what I understand was oversubscribed to the tune of $3.1 million and was, was gone before 24 hours was up. Is that correct? Yeah, well, partially. So we had raised most of that a while back, but then we allocated a portion to uh, Bank to the Future. And that actually took us a lot longer to get through working with uh, Bank to the Future than than we thought. So that's why we opened that last segment up. And that last segment, I think it was like uh, 250K or something like that. That was the one that was snapped up in 24 hours. But okay. the, the bulk of it was raised you know, months ago. Okay. So, um, why did y'all use this? The, the, and the STO was actually the, the token is named or the token symbol is X or EXO. Is that correct? Yeah. XO. XO. Okay. So can you, Samson, just, can you take me through that as to like your, your reasoning as to what, why, you know, what, why do it this way instead of like, um, our good friend Chris Roberts, who did it through Patreon, <laughs> yeah, we let's not we won't get into to the bashing of of his particular platform, but um, you know, he did it the three hundred million through you know years and years of Patreon donations, and you guys did it through EXO, uh, and that was using, from what I understand, the liquid side change out, chain out of Blockstream. Is that correct? Correct. So okay. I guess one, one motivation is I want to dog food Blockstream's tech. So we we recently rebranded Liquid Securities into Blockstream AMP, which stands for Asset Management Platform. And it's just a way to manage tokens in the Liquid network. So I believe we're going to see a boom in security tokens in the coming years. So this is something we started you know, a couple of years back and now it's ready for prime time. And we're, we're doing a bunch of POCs with different companies. But I think um, Infinite Fleet is the first security token that is using the AMP platform uh, to create their security token. So just to skip back a few steps, the developer of Infinite Fleet is Pixelmatic. And then there is this new entity called Exordium, which is the issuer of the EXO token. And Exordium is meant to be a publisher. So at first, it's going to publish one game, which is Infinite Fleet. But down the road, this is meant to be like the next uh, Ubisoft or EA. It'll publish many different titles, and it'll have like a library of different games that it's like publishing and operating. But the reason for doing a security token, I guess, is we think that there is a direct benefit to the uh, end user or player in this case. So if you're backing Star Citizen, those are just donations to Chris Roberts. You're, you're never going to get a piece of the pie if there is a pie <laughs> yeah. down the road, right? But with Infinite Fleet and ExoToken, you actually get effectively equity. So uh, the structure is similar to INX token um, from the INX uh, exchange. So there's a profit share on it. We're doing a 20% share of profits. And you also basically have equity. It's... Um, rights upon liquidation or a liquidity event. So the only missing part is voting rights. We decided not to include that into the security token. But 
the net effect is a player can decide to own a piece of this game. So if you're just if if you're if you're going to invest into playing the game and you know spending a couple of years of your life playing this, you can also buy a small chunk of the game as equity. Uh, you could put in you know hundred dollars and buy a ship too. So you can buy a ship for you know fifty bucks and buy a piece of equity for a uh, hundred bucks. And you know if you're going to be playing this thing it's not a bad choice and there is a strong case for uh, there being an upside because you know the game market is booming now especially with the the the, the pandemic and the covid hysteria people are 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 doubling down on playing i think mm-hmm. um, the the consoles have been selling out nonstop right the new xbox and playstation just because you know people sort of recession proof industry yeah exactly it's a recession proof industry so you know, this is an opportunity to get in at the ground floor. Typically, mm-hmm. investing in a new project like this is limited to uh, industry insiders, uh, private equity firms, or you know, VC firms that uh, get first dibs on this. But now, because it's a security token, uh, anybody can invest. So you're it's democratizing investment. Okay, so this, but the security token itself, the the EXO is is actually at this point, is it like fully regulated uh, by SEC laws and all that kind of crap, or is it w- awaiting regulation? Or it is uh, filed ready. We have a Reg D filing, but we decided to change to Reg A, Reg A plus, uh, because we think that uh, is a lot better for the investors down the road. Because for a Reg A plus filing. Um, you don't need to be an accredited investor, and there is no limit on on trading this thing. So, once we, you know, w- once we are approved for Reg A, fingers crossed, then you know anybody can invest. Right now, it's all accredited investors, and it's mm-hmm. not there. There are limits to trading this thing, but mm-hmm. with a Reg A plus token, it could be listed on INX and traded just like any other, you know, cryptocurrency or stock or whatever. Right. So if um, so, some of these well. So, Clearly, these EXO tokens have already been been handed out. Did y'all keep some back for public offering, or do you generate new tokens once your reggae you know comes through? So we've done one distribution. We actually had a a demo with a reporter today, and we did an. Uh, so Charlie is one of Charlie Lee is one of our investors. We did a live demo of the very first uh, creation of the EXO token and issuance of it to him as an investor. Uh, he signed a SAFT um, earlier this year that right. you know, would allocate his token. Um, but we are probably going to issue the rest of them when we uh, finish the next filing. And we have another allocation for our next round, which is being done um, on the Stalker platform. And they're based under, under Luxembourg. Uh, it, it's, uh, they're in Luxembourg and it's based on Luxembourg law. So that will be, um, I think, an eight million allocation, and of course, there's like a small amount for the team and advisors. Will that be available for U.S. citizens, or because our the United States government has weaponized all of the United States citizens against the rest of the world? Because God forbid you provide <laughs> me a financial service or product without meeting SEC regulations, and we saw what happened to Arthur Hayes and Bitmex. So, is is it will it be available to U.S. citizens or no? Yeah, so um, some of our investors in the Reg D uh, filing are U.S. investors like Charlie, but uh, once we have the Reg A 
done, then we can kind of open it up to uh, more U.S. investors and smaller investors. So that's okay. something we're working on with our, our legal counsel right now. Okay, so the, but that is one of the two tokens that are involved in this game. The other one is completely internal, where the STO and the or EX, the EXO token is external, mm-hmm. but the INF is actually internal to the game and, and part of the internal game economy. Uh, can you talk about that? Is that is that tied directly to EXO or is it a completely different token? It's completely different. So we call it a dual token model. So there is a token for raising money. It is a security. We're not you know, trying to say it's not a security. It's a utility, like a lot of the uh, projects out there. And then INF token is a real utility token. It's not being sold. It is going to be uh, basically given to players as they complete missions in the game. So it, it is meant to replace like World of Warcraft gold or okay. lineage to Adena or whatever. It's the, the currency of the players. And what we're deciding is like, it's going to be portable. So players can you know, do whatever they want with it. They can put it into a hardware wallet. They can make a multi-sig wallet or they can remove it from the game or do whatever they want. But we want to give players that choice, freedom and portability. Okay, so if it's removable from the game, I saw something on the uh, Infinite Fleet website that said that in the future, it's possible that this might be listed on exchanges so it could be pulled out of the game, traded against, you know, BTC or something else. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is that, I mean, I, I guess like, it, it, well, first of all, is that true? Yeah, so the idea is like exchanges could list it. It's just a crypto token, like... Um, okay anything else. So it's their choice to list it. And if it is, then people can trade it and do whatever they want with it. Okay. So, Um, but that's on the liquid note, that's on the liquid side chain as well, correct? Yes. So we're we're heavy adopters of Blockstream technology. No, you think, gosh. Um, (laughs) No, no, no. Um, Here's, I I think here's where I want to kind of get in, you know, off of this section by talking about Game economies in 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 general, and I, I want to kind of roll back to my days back in Ultima Online. When I joined that game, it had already been going on for a couple of years, uh-huh. and I missed the gold duplication bug that plagued the, <laughs> like the first. I think it was I think it was discovered in the first six weeks of the game, and so much gold was duplicated in the game that it destroyed the economy. There's there was no such thing as an actual real economy in that game left and they were never able somehow the, the I, I i don't know why they didn't roll the whole damn thing back i it doesn't really matter what richard garriott and star long which was his main producer for that particular uh particular game um mm-hmm. i don't know what they were thinking and I, I i don't want to get into their head but what one thing that was clear is that rare items were duplicated and a shit ton metric shit tons of gold were generated and it effectively destroyed the economy. Now that exact, that is exactly why when I first ran into Bitcoin, I was like, can't work because Mm -hmm. of duplication Mm -hmm. did not, you know, did not read the white paper. You know, I was like, it was one of these, it's the same, it's the same damn, you know, Genesis story of almost 80% of the Bitcoiners that I know they're like, it's dismissed at first. And you literally have to be slapped three times in a row with this thing Mm -hmm. before you, before you understand it. And then, and then I got it. So this brings me to this major question of, you know, why is it that game studios are not 
all over this and I've got a couple of theories, but one is they're terrified of being called a money transmitter. Uh And two, they have no, there's no vested interest for them to do something like, you know what, this token that we've been using, that we've been making like ass loads of money on in Fortnite, we're not going to use that anymore. We're going to, we're going to switch over to Bitcoin or we're going to switch over to like some, you know, some other token. They have, there's, there's no way that you can sell that to the shareholders of the companies that produce these games because of the financial loss that they could experience. They could actually experience financial gain depending, but there's a real risk there. So can you, know, both of y'all gentlemen, can you like, you know, give, give me your thoughts, Wayne, let's start with you. Why is it that you think game studios aren't all over cryptocurrency at this point because they're not? Uh, I think they're too preoccupied with getting the money other ways like loot boxes right now. (laughs) So, so, so like it's, it's all about what's mainstream and what works. Right. And they're all going to follow each other to make sure that they get their piece of the pie. There's no incentive for them to take on the risk. It's just like making uh, another skew of a, a successful franchise, right? Uh, right? Why why bother to take the risk? So it comes back to what we've been saying from the beginning is we're willing to take risks. We're willing to make something amazing and different. So that's that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Samson, the is, there, model- is there a possibility of being considered a money transmitter, especially if I can take INF token out, put it on Kraken, and have our good friend Jesse, you know, Jesse Powell sell it for, I don't know, something else and then like turn it into, is there a possibility that the platform itself could be looked at as money transmission considering that the token is not boxed in? I don't know. That's a really interesting question because technically you can do this in current games, right? Like True. you can take the game currency, take the game currency out, or you can transfer it from account to account. And, you know, for World of Warcraft, you know, if you're a gold farmer, you just you still do it, right? It's just not not easy to do it, and you can even sell the whole account. Like you make mm-hmm. an empty account, and you just transfer that uh, account to someone, and someone, and you're done, right? So yeah. you know, it, it's a question of like, it, it, are the regulators going to come and look at this and say, you know, this is different than everything else uh, because now it's a cryptocurrency, but. Technically, it's all doable in these existing games, and there are massive secondary markets for a lot of this. Um, mm-hmm. For Second Life, I think I, I don't think they're a money transmitter, but you can freely convert like Linden dollars to dollars. That too. is true, and I, and I have done that on on several occasions. So, yeah, I kind of that's what I was kind of like wanting to get your feel on this because I, I, you know, as a theory as to why it is as a potential theory as to why it is that game companies aren't all over, you know, cryptocurrency at this point, especially, you know, especially Bitcoin and the secondary, you know, or the, uh, the second layer technologies like liquid and, or the, the lightning network, um, you know, why they weren't doing it. And I think, you know, I, I think this kind of solidifies that second theory that they're just not interested because they're already making oodles of cash the way that they're doing it. God forbid, why would you, why would you break that? So I think it's, I, I'm excited about the fact that there are some, like the newer game companies are going to start being able to come up and have fresh ground to walk upon, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So back to that point, like the incentives are for the, the incentives for a game company is to control everything, right? And 
make as much as you can possibly make out of it. And what is good for the game company or the publisher is not necessarily good for the player, right? If you bought some uh, V-Bucks and you didn't use them all, then you know they're just sitting there, right? You can't empty your account and get rid of it in some way, right? You're just stuck with the excess. Right. And you know that that that's good for them because you know if you can get rid of it, then it, it damages their economy, which is selling the stuff that is locked down to them, right? Right. But if you give people a choice and you give them a freer currency, in this case, a game currency, I think that will win out. It's like it's like Bitcoin, right? The freest money will win. the The more encumbered a money is, the less it's going to gain traction, right? People gravitate towards you know what is more free. And I think my hunch is that it's going to be the same for a game. Like the freest game currency is going to win out. Right. Okay. So now I kind of want to talk about the, the future of Infinite Fleet. Uh, you guys aren't, uh, is there a, there's, I, as far as I can tell, there's no public alpha that clearly we're not, you, you guys aren't into beta at all. Where, where Where's Infinite Fleet right now? Wayne, you want to take it? Uh, well, alpha is coming up, and uh, we have a lot of the core systems set up for the first uh, closed alpha session. Um, the art is definitely uh, still work in progress, and we're improving upon it because we are developing the art at the rate that we should be developing it with the design instead of just making art and then trying to fandangle it into the design. So because uh, Jason and I have worked together on uh, projects before, we, we obviously know the correct procedure in making something and, and reducing the amount of waste, especially in a game of this size. So, so yeah, like it, it, at the end of the year, we're going to be having alpha and it's going to be the first step into showing you more about the world and the art and then uh, like releasing more and, and more content as the design gets firmed up. Okay. So that's, that's going to be closed. Is there a way that, you know, listeners can like sign up? I mean, you know, do they, if they want to have a crack at the game, is that possible or is it like closed and only for people that, that you guys know because you need real solid information? I think we're open to, um, you know, opening up to a limited number. I, I guess the best way is to sign up for the newsletter because if we do open up some slots, uh, that's how we're going to blast it out to people. Um, I, I think we're also thinking we're bouncing the idea back and forth internally now to sell a few ships on the store and if you buy a ship then you effectively get into the alpha too so there, okay. there's like a few channels that we want to play with to decide who gets the first stab at the game okay yeah now aside you know i don't want to get y'all into a situation where you're going it'll ship in two weeks but is there any timeline at all as to when you guys want to go gold It's like uh, gold. Like uh, <laughs> there's no 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 concept of gold anymore, right? That's true. That's uh, actually there's... that's actually true. But like I mean, like for like you know, release to public with the understanding that we're going to be continuously adding and and tweaking. But here it right. is. I, I think the goal is that we're going to be in beta sometime next year. We're we're gonna see how the alpha goes first, but. Um, you know, alpha will probably end up with a couple thousand players maxed out, and then we will probably do a reset of the world and then open it up to beta. And then once it's in beta, we'll just keep opening it up more and more and onboarding more players. 
and eventually we'll just remove that little beta tag like Gmail. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, that, that, yeah, that, that's great. Um, there was a couple of other little notes that I had here that I wanted to go through. Pixelmatic isn't just making, you know, infinite fleet. You've got, at, according to the website, I'm seeing at least four games. One of them, obviously infinite fleet. Two of them are for 12 and over. Uh, 12 years old and over, but two of them are for three years old and up. And one of them is called Magical Fun. And it seems to be kind of rooted in educational gaming. Is that is that correct? That's uh, it's based on the Magical Crypto Friends IP. I think we just made that for fun. Um, you know, a lot of our team have kids and they wanted to make a game that their own kids can play. <laughs> so we ended up doing right. that for fun. Um, some of the other games are games that we've licensed and operated in the past. Like there is a story-based game called Water Margin. We uh-huh. took that from a, a Japanese game developer and we operated it in Asia. And mm-hmm. I think an, another one was a, one of our original games, Gem Wizard, that we shut down like, well years ago. Oh, okay, okay. the The reason that I brought up the um, the magical fun one is because it had the you know the term educational games in it, and that seems to be something that you guys do think about. And I'm talking about the description of magical fun. It literally says we're committed to you know providing children with all kinds of fun and educational games. And educational games is something that I've fought with ever since I was a kid myself. They all suck. Yeah, you know, I'm not. I've never played Magical Fun, so I'm not saying that y'all suck. I'm just saying that in general, generally speaking, it's like nobody can wrap their minds around a truly fun, playable game that you come out on the other side, whether you're three, thirty, or you know, ninety, and being able to do something or understand something that you didn't understand before. Do y'all have that as a deep-seated thing, or is it just something that y'all think about? I think Chris uh, Wood, he's our COO. He actually worked in education before joining up with us, and he had an idea to do like a educational MMO game. I think that's still kicking around in his head, and he brings it up from time to time. But that's something we can look at. Like once we've built out the whole tech stack for Infinite Fleet, there's no reason why we can't do another game. And I think mm-hmm. you know, he's very passionate about that. Personally, I'm not, but I'm not opposed to doing something either. Okay. Well, Wayne, what about you? Are, uh, is uh, Do you think that gaming has a place in education or kind of not? Well, or? I think we haven't really touched on it uh, for Infinite Fleet, but like even just coming on board and listening to Samson's vision and um, what makes him really excited about Infinite Fleet in the in the early days when we were talking about it, it, it is all about our future and space, what is out there. Like this, this game is not just going to be the fantasy of the epic battles. There is a lot of real world science and things that, you know, as a society, we're growing and we're learning about the universe. And these are the kinds of things that we also want to teach in the background. It's not just going to be about... Um, uh, like the, the chronicles and then creating uh, the dynamic story as the players engage. There, There is things that are really rooted in the challenges that we have as a society today. And those are all the things that we want to touch on too, because we think they're worth talking about. Yeah. There's a lot of undertones. If you read the lore, like um, you have, we, we've constructed this new spacefaring nation state and we effectively call it a citadel. <laughs> it's not that creative, but I, I, we spent a lot of time thinking what to call it. I think citadelium was one thing and uh, Yuri uh, from uh, 
uh, Bitcoin Reserve ended up using that for his blog, I think. But you know, we just call them <laughs> citadels now. But there's a lot of like um, uh, subtle red pilling that we're trying to do, and that that is because I'm driving a lot of that story. And I want to kind of get people's gears grinding in their heads and thinking about different things. So in this new governance in the future, it's not like you elect your leaders. You you join a citadel that has a rule set and you agree to follow that rule set. And different citadels have uh, different flavors of rules. But if you're in the USF, uh, United Sol Federation, which is like the, the Federation, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the Starfleet Federation type thing of our world, right. then you subscribe to um, the core fundamental law, foundational law. And that is like simple things like don't kill, don't steal, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And you might have like flavors of different things pertaining to property rights and whatever on top. But in general, they can't contradict that. And... You know, there's other t- other things in there about you know, like, uh, like the, the, you don't have a leader. You have uh, representatives that function. You know, different aspects of society work. You know, to uh, produce a service, not you know, indefinite bureaucracy, right? So these are some of the things I want to push through and get into the the minds of the players, and they may not realize it, but it, it's all very Bitcoin centric in a way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Which leads me to my, you know, essentially my last question is what, you know, what do you think of like, let's, let's stay Bitcoin centric. Let's go full maximalism here. What do you think Bitcoin's role is in gaming in the future? And clearly nobody can, nobody knows, and we're all going to be wrong. So it's okay to say shit and be wrong about it later. But like right now, you know, Samson, what what do you think Bitcoin's future is in gaming? Does it have one? I think it does. I think it does. Like uh, Mint Gox, uh, they're doing some interesting stuff, which is you know paying you in Sats, and you know that that's a interesting model where you can actually earn Bitcoin by playing a game. Um, I think the basis of it is really like Bitcoin is money, and what can you do with this? digital money and tie it into different game experiences, right? You could um, reward people, uh, you could influence. I, I think this is part of um, uh, Bitcoin Rally, the racing game, but you could influence the discourse of the game by buying something for a player, right? So th- these are all different things that I think Bitcoin could impact, but I, I think it's not going to be a major thing uh, because Bitcoin has a far greater impact, which is re rearchitecting finance and the monetary system. But right. in the interim, in the next five years, I think this will drive some adoption, like getting it into games and paying out little tiny rewards in Bitcoin. Okay. Wayne, do you got a, a view on, on the future of, of Bitcoin specifically and possibly, you know, uh, second layer technology like lightning being used uh, as inroads and you know on ramps and off ramps into game economies. Uh, I'm pretty new to Bitcoin. Um, like joining Infinite Fleet and Pixelmatic was my first introduction into Bitcoin, and I'm learning every day. But I think it definitely has a home in gaming. Uh, I, I think it opens up people's minds into how not only like the financial system of the world is is right now and what the opportunities are for uh, like. things to change but i think there's definitely an an avenue for the youth of our of of the world to learn more about bitcoin and uh like something about economy as well in a subtle way also the 
INF currency in the game, in the lore, it's actually like the Bitcoin of this universe. <laughs> INF stands for Interplanetary Networked uh, Finance Currency, right? So INF. Uh, okay. But there is in the lore, and actually in real life, there is a cap on INF. I think uh, there's a maximum of 1 billion. So, you know, players will be exposed to this concept of finite amounts of money and scarcity. So, you know, there's there's ways that we can expose them to the ideas of Bitcoin without, you know, directly integrating Bitcoin and you know breaking that uh, immersion in the universe. All right. Well, uh, it, we are like, man, dude, we are damn near one hour and twenty minutes in. You guys probably got other things to do. I want to end this as usual. How Samson? How do people find you? I'm on Twitter. My handle is Excelion. And yeah, that's probably the best place. <laughs> Don't add me on LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, I did I did add you on LinkedIn. Uh, okay, just you can add me on LinkedIn. <laughs> if I don't know who you are and you add me on LinkedIn, I might not accept it, but you know, I'm on Twitter. Sure. Wayne? And I'm also, I'm also on Twitter uh, at Wayne Wong Chong. You can reach me there. I'd love to hear from everybody about uh, the art and uh, get ideas from people that are interested in, in uh, seeing more about what we are doing with all of our ships and the lore and the things that we're creating. It's, it's, it's going to be exciting uh, when alpha hits. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and let you guys say goodbye to the listeners. So go ahead and do that. All right. Goodbye guys. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Goodbye guys. Thanks for having us, David. Uh-huh. Absolutely, man. See y'all later. Really enjoyable having those two gentlemen hang out with me for as long as they did. They were really gracious with their time. Um, so yeah, you know, it's probably you know for the very first interview that I've ever done, uh, interviewing somebody else and not being interviewed myself. Uh, it's, it's I, I did a decent job. It's probably I need to get much better at, at doing this. But the only way to do that is just to do it all the time. So. If you, you know, found anything cringe about, you know, uh, my interview, let me know so I know where it is that I screwed up. I know that I talked way too much. I should have just shut the hell up on several occasions. But, you know, when you're kind of geeking out with other gamers, especially people in the in the game production side, it's kind of hard not to just chat. I mean, I've been fascinated with video games ever since I was a small child. And when I found out, that these guys were as knee deep for as long as they have been in the gaming industry and been involved with, you know, top tier companies, again, not Bob's backyard gaming mechanics or something like Ubisoft relic. Uh, they've actually got a guy, uh, that they brought on. Uh, I think they announced this one. I, I don't know who they, you know, they talked about get bring on yet another guy and we didn't talk about the, uh, the name or whatever, but, um, there's a guy named Damon and they brought him over from, oh God, what was it? Uh, the, uh, Bioware, which is, you know, the makers of people like Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate 2, Neverwinter Nights. And those are the old hits that they had that the Bioware, if, you know, if you've been anywhere close to gaming ever, you know, Bioware, but yeah, it was kind of hard not to, you know, just completely geek out on them. 
Anyway, again, my appreciation to both Wayne Wong Chong and Samson Mo for uh, spending that much time with me. And I, I think we're just going to go ahead and close it out here because it's this is going to be a longer one of the longest episodes ever. So I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.